Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Scottish Sports Stories. I'm delighted to welcome my guest this, this episode, Mr. Alan Tate. He's a golf professional, a renowned after-dinner speaker. Now, before I bring Alan in, I'd like to list one or two of his accomplishments. In 1986, Alan was a Scottish European and World Boys Champion. In 1994, Alan shot a course record at Carnoustie, 64, minus 8. Now, if any of you golfers out there have played Carnoustie, you know how brilliant a score that is. In 1996, Alan was a PGA Scottish Region Order of Merit winner. Also in 96, he captained the Scottish PGA to victory in the PGA European Team Championships. Good afternoon, Alan. How are you? Hi, thanks, Willie. That was a, a nice introduction. A few memories there. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks, Willie. Thanks, thanks for having me on and uh, well, well done in your new podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on, Alan. So I just listed one or two achievements that you've done so far. I'm sure there's loads more. But before we get to those, I'd like you to take me back to where you started in golf, please, Alan, if you can. Yeah, well, I'm a I'm an Ayrshireman, uh, Willie. I grew up in uh, Irvine as a as a small boy. Uh, Mum and Dad, they're 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 in their eighties. They still live in Irvine. Uh, my sister's down here. So yeah, I grew up sort of Irvine Bogside. Um, you know, and I was a, a, a junior and uh, Irvine Golf Club, I don't know how aware you are of it, but it's a, a fantastic club steeped in great history. Um, three uh, Scottish amateur champions over the years, plus myself as Scottish boys champions. So so having four national uh, four national champions over the last 650, 60, 70 years has been uh, something that we're all very proud of at Irvine Golf Club. So it was a great place to grow up. And obviously, um, I don't know how familiar you are with that coastline, but a little bit like the East Coast. It's just golf course after golf course down down in the West Coast. So I was very, very lucky to be surrounded with uh, so many great golf courses. And mum and mum and dad were members there, as was my big brother. Um, so I sort of get introduced to the game at Irvine Golf Club. And I was very, very lucky and very honoured and privileged to be made a, a life-honoured member of the club uh, when I was 18, after I had won the, the Scottish Boys and the, the Doug Sanders World Junior Championship. And uh, that's a, a life on membership. I'm very, very proud of. Just unfortunately, as, as life is though, and, and business and other commitments, I, I just don't get down as as often as I like um, getting back to Irvine Golf Club. But I'm still very welcome um, back there. And as I say, very, very proud to have have grown up. It's such a, a great club, steeped in fantastic history. Fantastic. What sort of years did you start playing golf, Alan? So I guess I just started walking around my mum and dad when I was about five or six year old. I used to sit in the back of my dad's trolley and I would uh, hit the odd shot. Um, But I would say probably more seriously, I probably started getting into it when I was sort of probably 11, 12, when I could start playing in junior medals and and stuff like that. Um, There probably wasn't as many open events as there are now. It was, you know, just sort of Irvine Boys Championship, Ayrshire Boys Championship, for example, Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I started sort of playing medals, as I say, when I was 11, 12, and I get picked for the junior team at quite a young age as well. So probably round about then, I, I, I felt a, a bit of a talent for it. But like like a lot of boys my age at that time, you know, my, my first love was football, and I really loved playing football. And I was no bad at football. I, I was on an S form at Air United, and I had a chance to go to Dundee United. But it became the weekends and, and you had to really choose because every Saturday, Sunday, it was either uh, golf events or it was the, the football. So so I ended up going down the, the golf uh, route. But I still continued playing football, five aside, seven aside and stuff. Um, but uh, I think that's probably when it all really started for me, just before my teens. 
Okay. Was that a big decision, Fitbar Golf Hall? I don't think so, really, Willie, to be honest with you. I don't think I really spent much, too much time about it. You know, if, if I had, if I, if I went to Dundee United, you know, I was living in Irvine at the time with my parents, and that would just have been impossible for commuting. So I think really for that decision alone, it was just sort of, you know, and plus the fact, you know, golf, you can play on your own for many, many, many years up until you're, you know, you're an old man, I suppose. You'd still go out there and enjoy it. Uh, whereas football, very short career. And, and back then, I mean, the football, it was, it was nothing like it is now with the money and stuff, you know, and it was a lot of travelling and a lot of hassle um, for very little reward, to be honest with you. So so I just, I felt that the right decision was to, to just get get, in, get stuck into the golf. And a decision you never never regretted, yeah? No, I don't think so. No, I've, I've, I've enjoyed uh, golf and, and not just playing the game, but everything else I've done, my director of golf roles, working, you know, doing on-course commentary for the, for BBC Radio Scotland, after dinner speaking. So I've, I've, I've had a, a good, uh, have a good um, kick of the ball, um, so to speak, um, through golf. And, and as I say, not just playing the game, but it's taken me down many different avenues uh, over my career, which is, is great. Fantastic. So just before I come away from football, Alan, you say you grew up in Ayrshire, which an area United supporter. Uh, it wasn't actually. I'm I'm a I'm a Rangers man, so uh, so I, I I didn't support either of the two Ayrshire ones, Ayr or Kelly. So uh, I grew up. Uh, my big brother was a, a Rangers fan, and I was sort of got into Rangers quite quite early on. So so yeah, Rangers uh, Rangers. I say I used to have a season ticket, but uh, again, just through been busy at weekends, I, I haven't been to as many games as, as I would like to, but. Uh, Let's just say it was nice to stop the rot last year. Put it that way. It was, it was a long, it was a long nine or ten years, but uh, thankfully uh, we stopped the rot, so that was quite nice. Oh, my son would agree with. He's a rank blue nose fan. <laughs> <laughs> so you've now taken up golf as your your serious sport. How did the practice regime go? Was you dedicated? Or did you get lessons? So I didn't actually really start going for lessons till I was maybe 16, 17. I, I, um, I really just went on raw talent, Willie. I just I, I was quite natural and I, I quite enjoyed just being out there doing my own thing. Um, and I kind of enjoyed finding my own way around the golf courses. Um, and it, even to this day, I, you know, I'm probably not the longest hitter in the world. I'm not the shortest, but, you know, I, I still know how to get round the golf, around the golf course. And I think that came from, you know, playing a lot of golf at that very young age, you know, I would I would much rather when I was at Irvine Golf Club, um, you know, my mum and dad would drop me off in the, the summer holidays and, and I would have a, a a sandwich with me and that was me. I would I'd maybe play two or three rounds of golf that day just out on my own and hitting loads of different shots from different areas. And I much preferred that to practice and I've never been a practicer, never had the patience for it. I find practicing really boring. And it always admired me over over the years when I watched the, the top pros and just how hard they worked. And um, as I say, I was more, I, I just loved being on the golf course. Um, so I, that probably came back to bite me as my career went on, that you maybe didn't do the, the hard work that you were supposed to, um, you know, stand there hitting balls for three, four hours a day. As I say, I would have been much, much happier on the golf course. But as I say, you know, growing up in Ayrshire with the wind and the heather and, and all the different terrains and the bumps, I think it was a great, a great grounding for me to, to sort of find my way um, in golf. And as I say, only when I got sort of 17, probably 16, 17, 18, I, I, I thought maybe, right, let's get a, a coach on board because, you know, and just for wee tune-ups, your ball position or, 
your 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 alignment, whatever. And even even then, I didn't I didn't get very technical about things. I've always just been been fairly natural. So, so yeah, I didn't I didn't really get down the the hard you know coaching. Bill Bill Lockie was my coach when I was kind of teen teenage, and and Bill was quite good at just identifying little little things. He he wouldn't go into too much technical um, jargon, which suited me because I, I didn't really understand. And to this day, I mean, I, I don't really. I watch Sky Telly and I see them drawing lines and ball flights and spin control, and and I still to this day don't don't get too involved with it. You know, I'm quite happy just going out and hitting the ball and trying to get round as low a score as you can. Well, as you know, Alan, I'm a golf coach, and I firmly believe keeping things as simple as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I've pretty much done that all my career. That's good. So you started. How did the golf improve, Alan? Did you improve quite quickly? Yeah, no, I had the, the, the year that really stuck out was 1986. Um, the Scottish boys was at Dunbar that year in sort of uh, mid-late April. And I was quite a high handicap getting into the Scottish boys. I was playing off four, um, which again, you know, I, I think fives get balloted out. So I only scraped in. But I, I wasn't put off by that because the that whole winter I practiced so hard. Well, out in the golf course at Irvin, Bog, uh, Irvin, Irvin Bogside. I was out in the course every day. I was playing the course backwards. I was hitting two, three balls off every tee. And and all sorts of weather it really was, because that was going to be my sort of last year playing in the Scottish boys, and I was really determined to do well. Okay. But, I really, but I really went in there under the radar. You know, nobody nobody gave me a chance. Um, and that, I, I was quite happy about that. You know, it was... At that time, it was Ewan McIntosh, who's a good friend of mine, and Stuart Bannerman, and Harry's son. You know, okay. they, were, they, they were the kind of top boys playing off with plus two, plus three, and they were the sort of favourites. Um, but as that week went on, I just, I, I, you know, I won, I keep, just, just kept winning. And then I, I ended up playing uh, Ewan McIntosh in the final, 36-hole final, and I beat Ewan in the final. And really, that was the, everything changed for me there. You know, the... And then the stroke play event started and, and all the 72 holes and the 36 holes. So I went into that Scottish boys in April playing off four. And when it became the August or September that year, I was playing off plus three. So wow. in that very short period of time, that four or five months, you know, my handicap came down seven strokes from 40 plus three. And, and I always accredit that to just how hard I worked for that that winter, you know, October through to March before, before the boys. I said I was out there, you know, I mean, the members used to look out, think, God, he's out there again. What's he doing? Look at the weather. And But I just, I got out there and I just wanted to make sure I was doing everything I could to have the best chance of, of doing it. So so I would say 86 was a massive improvement, more or less overnight, it really was. And I sort of burst on the scene and it was a little bit of, who's, who's this guy from Ayrshire? We've never really heard of him. And then all of a sudden I had a great year in 86. I say that was, went on to win the Duke Sanders that year as well. And and got capped at boys and youths level, and as you said earlier, went to Shangti uh, in France, where I captained the, the the Scottish boys team um, to to win in the European Championships over in France, which was the first time ever uh, the, the Scots winning it on European soil. So that was a great honour, and say so. It all happened very very quickly again after that sort of uh, that wee purple spell in in eighty six. What age was you in eighty six, Alan? So I was seventeen then. Yep. So I was seventeen yeah. then. And the way my birthday came in April, I, I wasn't able to go back to Dunbar to defend my title. I think I missed it by about two days, which oh. I, I, I had kind of mixed feelings about it. I, was, I would have liked to have went there and, you know, been the guy that everybody's wanting to shoot down. But at the same time, it was nice to 
to to play your last Scottish boys and, and walk away as champion, you know. So that was that was nice as well. And a fantastic course in Bar, isn't it? Oh yeah. Really good. So when did you start thinking about turning pro or did you start thinking about turning pro? So not really at that time, uh, 86, um, Mr. Duke Sanders, who I, I, I was talking about early, earlier, um, when I won the, the, um, the Duke Sanders World Championship at Kings Links in Aberdeen, um, Mr. Sanders came in a, a chat with me and my mum and dad. Uh, always remember it, we were in the, the, old, is it the old ballroom at Aberdeen down at the... Down uh, at the beach, beach ballroom. That's the one. So the big prize given was there and Mr. Sanders took me and my mum and dad aside and said, look, I really think the next development for Alan's to go to America um, on a, a golf scholarship. And really at that time, you know, it was a very new thing. Nobody was really doing it. I think Monty had done it and maybe a couple others, but it was really quite a, a new thing. And um, he arranged everything. He was amazing. And, and you know, me and my mum and dad had a, a good talk about it, but I just decided I've, what an opportunity I've got here to go to America for, for it was actually two years. It was junior college, which... Is, a, is only a two-year scholarship. Um, and, and that was the plan then, was to go out there, um, go to America, do my scholarship, and then come back and turn pro. And that's what happened. I went out I went out to uh, in Texas. I was at a little place called Paris, Texas, which was a little sort of hick town in the middle of nowhere, about an hour and a half from uh, Dallas. Okay. And, uh, I was very, very homesick the first few weeks because I'd never really been away from home and having to fend, fend, fend for yourself. Um but it ended up, I had two very, very happy years there. I became their number one player. Um, I graduated with a sort of diploma in journalism at the end of it, which really over here is not really worth a lot. But uh, it was nice to, to do a little bit of education when I was out there as well. So so that was a great two years. And then when I came back from there, that was the plan, was to then um, start doing my PGA training and, and find, find, a, find a club and find a job. And that's what I've done. Okay, so how was the golf different in Texas to say Irvine when you grew up? Do you know actually, apart from the you know obviously been uh, apart from being um, having to hit the ball through the air an awful lot because it's a bit more sort of target golf. You know, many uh, sort of man-made lakes and ponds, and and the greens were always more receptive. So, you know, I was always um, I always sort of like to squeeze the ball sort of under the wind. So. I had to adapt quite quickly to get higher ball flight, and I was able to do that, um, no bother. Um, but but Texas and Irvine, bizarrely, um, quite a windy a windy place, and uh, you know, it, I think my um, my experience of growing up in Ayrshire really shone through because a lot of the boys that were on the scholarship they came from sunnier climes like Florida and California, where. I don't think it's that windy, and um, so I really kind of sort of came to the fore out in tech, and, and the, the windier it was out there, the happier I was. Um, so as I say, I had to learn to hit the ball a bit, a bit higher, so as it was coming down a bit softer onto the greens, etc. Okay. I quite, quite enjoyed it when the when the, the wind picked up. Felt quite at home. So all your parts as a young lad on the course, fairly stood in good stead. Yeah? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. A very, very humid place. I mean, in the summer. The humidity was was pretty horrendous, but I mean their winters were just as bad as ours. You know they could get really really cold and a lot of snow and stuff where we where we were based. Um, and then of course you had uh, the chance of tornadoes, uh, etc. So it was completely different uh, weather wise. But uh, but no, do you know when I when I came home after my two years, I really I really felt quite at home out in Texas and had a lot of pals by that point who 
Facebook, Twitter has been a has been a wonderful thing because I regretted for many years. You know, we, we all said we'd write to each other, and at that time it, it really was write a letter and stick it in an envelope and post it off airmail. And and ugh, as usual, that lasted about six months, and then we all started losing touch with each other. And always regretted it, and then all of a sudden, when social media appeared, all these. Uh, college pals of mine we're all back in touch and, and it's just great to see how their lives have have uh, transformed with their families and what they're doing now so so it's nice to um still be able to keep in touch with these guys now after all these years the magic of social media so when Absolutely. you came home alan what was the plan what did you do when you came home yeah so uh, i came home and uh, there was a, a a job going at Codder golf club in bishop briggs in glasgow um, working for a chap, Ken Steveley, and, and ironically, Ken was actually from Irvine um, as well. Um, so I went and spoke to Ken and, and uh, told him I wanted to start doing my, my PJ training, which was four years. Um, so I was committed to doing that. Uh, I really felt, you know, I was only 19 at that time, and I thought, yes, I've still got aspirations of getting on the European tour, um, but, you know, let's do this, as, have, have something to fall back on that if you don't make it on tour, You'll be PGA qualified. You can go down the director of golf route. You can do other things. And I'm really glad I've done that. Um, so I moved up to Glasgow, lived in a, a wee flat in Springburn in Glasgow, sunny Springburn. Okay. I was there for four years and uh, got qualified. Um, and, and then really after that, the plan was to sort of start playing full time on the Scottish Tartan Tour with the goal of getting my, my, my European tour card as you would go to the school each year. So it was nice to get the my PGA stuff behind me and then I could just really focus on playing golf full time for, you know, you know, two or three years playing Tartan Tour. But as I say, the, the main goal was to try and get on the European Tour, which I got there eventually, but I'm sure you'll ask me about it now. It wasn't, it wasn't the success that we were all hoping for. Uh, just a wee footnote on Ken Stevely. In 1975, I carried for four rounds for him in the Northern Open at Royal Dormach. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, now, he made it through the qualifier. I can't remember how he did in the combo. Right. I remember, he was a great big tall chap, really nice, quiet spoken lad. That's him, yeah. He was a good player. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, he was good. You know, when I, when I was at Codder, he, he, he kind of went off the boil a wee bit and um, he kind of lost his confidence a bit. But a great teacher of the game, good businessman. And, uh, you know, he spent a lot of his time latterly over the last few years out in Corfu doing golf schools and very successful as well. So, Okay, yeah, I've kind of lost touch with Ken a wee bit. With, I see him occasionally on Facebook, but uh, no, he was a good boss. He was um, he was firm but fair, and uh, it was a, a good a good breeding ground for me at Codder Golf Club. I must admit, the oh, absolutely, members were good. Two good courses, good practice facilities, and and as I say, a good boss as well. Just as a wee footnote before we move on, the three ball that day was Ken Stavely, David Hoosh, and I think it was uh, Ronnie Shade, would it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that was a three. That's a blast for the past, eh? Ah, it certainly is, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, we're now at the stage of trying to qualify for the... You've done the Tartan Tour, bit. Yep. How did you go on in it? So, yeah, Tartan Tour I really enjoyed. You know, I won a lot of pro-arms, uh, won, um, won the Scottish PGA Match Play Championship, and then that year, which was 96, I ended up going on to win the the Scottish PGA Order of Merit, which was a, a great achievement because there was a lot of good players around at that time, um, a lot of good players playing on the Tartan Tour. So I was delighted to, to win that, and that was in 96. But but really, I went from a tour card from uh, sort of 92, 93, 94, 95. Didn't have any joy at all at tour school because it's very, very tough. I mean, uh -huh. 
playing Tartan Tours a a great breeding ground, but you know, going from Tartan Tour to try and get on the European tours just a completely different experience altogether. So so I had good success in Scotland, but a wee bit of a a, a big fish in a, a small pond. And then just kept going to the European Tour School every year. Um, and then eventually in 1996, when I went for my card that year, I managed to to uh, get through the PQ1, PQ2, and then managed to get my, uh, at that time it was 40 cards at the school. So it was six rounds at San Roque and Sota Grande out in Spain. Okay. Uh, 240 pros playing for 40 cards. And I managed, managed to get the 32nd card um, for the 1997 season which was great um but you know i was like 26 27 now which you know it sounds crazy but you know you know kids are getting their tour card now at 17 18 19 year old absolutely different ball game now, eh? totally different absolutely so different but but yeah 1996 going into 97 that was really exciting time for me I, I, it was always my a childhood dream to play in the european tour and and then i was getting my chance in 97 on on the big stage so, see the day you qualified, you got your card. Yep. After you sobered up. Yep. What was your thought process for the coming season? So, I'm, I'm a wee bit embarrassed to, to to admit this, and I've admitted it a few times. I was very naive. I uh, I genuinely thought that just getting my tour card, that was it. I, I genuinely thought, you know, well done, you've got your tour card after all these years, and now you're just going to kick on and, and have many, many years on the European tour, traveling the world, making a lot of money. I just thought the the transition would would suit me, and, and I, I would adapt very, very quickly. And boy, did I, you know, did I did I get in for a, a bit of a shock once I got out there? And again, this is 1997, 24 years ago, and the standard then what I thought was just unbelievable. And, and here we are, 24 years on, the standards just just nuts but you know i get out there and and you know the first few events so you know i think i think i made one cut in the first four or first five and you know i just i was you did very quickly think you need to really up your game here because you this this is going to be over before it's even begun uh okay just just, just with the quality and the standard of the players out there and, and it wasn't so much, um, you know. It was again, as you said, Earl, It's a totally different game now. Whether bombing drives, three, three hundred and fifty, four hundred yards. Nobody was really doing that then. Um, but but they, they, they were so accurate. The players, they were so. And again, they were great managers. Are getting around the golf course. But the biggest thing that I got from them was was how good they were from like 120, 130 yards in. Even even then, I mean, now they're they're just frightening at it. They're looking to hole every shot from that distance, but. But, you know, I would, I would be from that same distance hitting my, a wee wedge to maybe 12, 13 feet thinking it was a good shot. And, they, you know, that's a terrible shot from, for them at that stage. You know, uh, they're, okay. you know, they're knocking it in, you know, stiff for a couple of feet every time. So so I, I didn't feel I played badly on my year on tour. I just I just didn't, um, you know, I had too many kind of 72, 73, 74s where you've missed the cut by a couple. Uh, but. But, but really, in, in all honesty, even if I was making the cuts, you know, I, I just felt I didn't really have a, a right low in, in to, to be competing. So so I ended up, I, get, I think I got 16 events and I only made five cuts. I think my biggest check was about three and a half thousand, which is nothing, you know. So, but don't get me wrong, well, it was, it was an amazing experience. I absolutely loved every minute of it, you know, standing in the range with... You know, Greg Norman, Langer, Faldo, Seve, Olathebal, you know, guys that have grown up 
on watching on the telly. You know, what dreams are made of, eh? Uh, it really is. So, so I had some great, uh, great. I, I, I really enjoyed the experience. I was just so disappointed that I, I felt I didn't do myself justice, and I felt I could have done a lot better. I, I do firmly believe if. You know, I, I I remember saying to um, one of the guys in the European tour, one of the officials years ago, I said, you know, you should really at some point consider if you get your tour card that the rookie gets two years because just when I was finding my feet, it was all over. Um, and, you know, once you get over the can, initial stage fright where you are out there and you're playing in the game behind Fald or you're in the game in front of Seve or whatever, you know, that takes a bit of getting used to. It really did. And uh, I don't mind admitting that. You, you are a bit starstruck and the travelling is very different. You know, you're going, you know, a few months before I'm driving about Scotland playing in pro-arms and then all of a sudden you're travelling the world. It's a completely different experience. So, as I said, just when I was, I felt I was getting into it and I was getting a bit comfortable with it, you know, I'd lost my card and, and, and that was it. So, I, I, I think there was a, a case for, you know, give them two year, a two-year exemption, give them that first year as a kind of find-their-feet training ground, and then hopefully in year two they, they can kick on. But they would never do it, I get that. But it would just have been a – I think I would have had a much better chance knowing that I'd maybe took two years at it instead of just that one year to make an impact. Mm -hmm. To be fair, Alan, I think that's a very good point you've just made there. Because mm -hmm. a year can fly in, you're starstruck, you're finding your feet, and suddenly, oh, no, I've only four events, pressure's on. Well, not only that. If you if you get your card in a Ryder Cup year, you you'll get even few you'll get even fewer tournaments. And the year that I got my card, it was uh, I think it was Valderrama was at the Ryder Cup that year, and Seve was the captain, so everybody wanted to play in it, and they all wanted to play at Valderrama. So, so you had kind of pros going to countries they would normally never go to. So that was keeping people at me out, um, because okay. you would, you would get knocked down the the rankings if you like. So. So you can't really pick and choose when you get your tour card. But I've said to many pros over the years, if you're going for your tour card, make sure you do it in a non-rider cup year and get, get it. <laughs> um, so as I say, you can't really pick and choose that. But uh, you're just you're actually slightly unlucky if you get your card when it's uh, when everybody's travelling everywhere trying to get rider cup points. Uh, I actually think that's a very valid point. A two-year rookie card it could be the difference between making a life on tour and they making a life on tour. Oh, definitely. I mean, even sort of people, like Andrew Coulter, you know, it took Andrew a couple of years before he's, he found his feet. And it's taken a lot of, you know, good big names over the years where that first year, they've just, uh, it's just a totally different experience for them. And, and they are a wee bit caught in the headlights. But then, you know, like anything else, the more you do it, the more confidence you get and the more comfortable you feel. And then, you know, Andrew had a kind of couple of quiet years to begin with. And then, you know, he found his feet and kicked on. And next thing he was playing in the Dunhill and, you know, winning the Dunhill, playing World Cups and everything else, and had a wonderful career. But you know, people at him even even had a wee bit slow out the blocks for for the reasons I've just suggested. Uh, I have been his time to settle in there. Absolutely. So, during that first year, Alan, you were chaving away or struggling away, as we'd say. What point did you think, right? Next year's not going to happen. Um, so, so when I lost my card '97, I still went back to the school that year and. But I really, my conference had taken a bit of a knock. And when, I, you know, sort of, I think I played my last event in September, I think out in Portugal or something. But then the tour school didn't come round again to sort of November time. Okay. And, and, and so there was a couple of, couple of months window there. And when I went, went out to tour school that year, I just, I felt, I just my heart wasn't in it as much. And I felt I just, I had been kicked in the belly a bit and I hadn't really 
I hadn't really achieved what I, I was hoping to achieve. And, and I kind of went back there, I, I would say, a bit of a heavy heart, and, and my game just wasn't sharp enough. And, and I did think, you're not going to get through this this uh, this tour school this year. And as it was, I missed the cut after four rounds. And, and really after that, I came back, and so that was it, back to Scotland in 1998. And even that year, I really struggled, you know, even the Pro-Ams, which, you know, for a couple of years, I never, no, I didn't I didn't quite dominate the Tartan Tour, but I was certainly one of the, the top guys that was, was winning regularly. And even that year in 98, I just felt my game had really got, you know, even mentally, I wasn't I wasn't in the same place. And, and uh, believe it or not, I, I actually, uh, I think it was during 98, I actually developed uh, um, uh, the, the, the chipping yips, um, which oh, was... Okay. Which was bizarre. I don't know where that came from, and uh, they literally appeared one day in a pro am and, and stuck with me for about a couple of years. It was awful. Uh, put so much pressure on myself to hit 17, 18 greens every time I played. So I think that was all kind of written in the stars to start going down a, a different route in golf. Um, you know, 98, 99, I'm coming. You know, I'm now 30 years old and. And then I get the chance to uh, to go to the Westerwood Hotel down in Glasgow at Cumbernauld. They were uh, the hotel was in receivership at the time, and I, I met a, a lovely man called Grant Sort, who's been ending up been a very good friend of mine now for all those years. And, and um, Grant offered me the position there as to go in as a sort of director of golf role. But he did say to me, "Look, you know, we've got a lot of work ahead here, and if you are coming on board, you know, really you're." Your golf and your programs is going to have to take a back seat, and I was like, do you know what, Grant? The, the time is right, and I'm quite happy to do that. And uh, and I had seven year, uh, seven great years at Westerwood. You know, it's 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 always struggled the golf course with drainage, um, but seven really happy years there. We really um, we really built up that hotel again, and you know, when I went when I went there, the, the greenkeepers didn't have proper equipment, the, the staff didn't have any uniforms, there was no proper training in place. So that was a whole build-up of trying to do all that. So I, I literally, I literally played about off. Oh, maybe I could probably count in two hands how many, how many rounds of golf I played, or competitive rounds of golf I played in that six, seven years. Okay. And I, I really didn't miss it. I really didn't. I was uh, quite happy doing what I was doing, and, and my, my career just went down that that role. But then once I left Westerwood and I started getting a couple of new jobs. I started making time for myself and getting back into to playing golf again and started playing pro-ams again and competing again and realised I could actually still play. And all, and all of a sudden, the chip and yips were gone. So that was a huge result. Again, okay. that disappeared as quickly as they arrived. Okay. So really from about uh, 2000 and, uh, 2007, 2008, um, you know, I've, I've been a regular back in the Tartan Tour for the last 13, 14 years and I can hold my own and I, and I really enjoy been out there again playing in Scotland, but I think and going out there with no expectation, I really genuinely do about to enjoy it now. And it's a game of golf, and it's amazing. Get to the ninth, and you're a couple under, and you're you can still hit it, and you're still getting round, and you're still enjoying it. So, so it was a, it was a bit a, a stopgap in my career. The same when I went to Westerwood, but but certainly one I, d I didn't regret, and I think it was the right time to do that sort of move. So it sounds like you did a fantastic job at Westerwood, but I want to take you back to the tour just a wee bit, Alan. You yep. know us on just say uh, pick a tour star is doing well at the moment. Just anyone. Oh wow. Um well he he struggled he struggled the last few months, but uh, I, I would say Robert McIntyre. I'm really excited about uh, and I'm being biased because he's Scottish, but I really think he's 
got an amazing career ahead. Well, he's already got a great career, but I think there's we, we have still to see so much more from him. And as I say, I just wonder the last few months, there was a lot of talk about him making the Ryder Cup. And I just wonder if that maybe got to him a little bit because his, his form did dive. But but he'll come back stronger and better um, every year. And he's still such a young guy, great attitude. And uh, I'm really excited about watching him over, over, the, over the next few years. I certainly well looking forward. I'm speaking about Mr. McIntyre, right? You notice now a golfer now, there's a team surrounding these guys. Yeah. Okay. So when you were playing, who was in Team Tate apart from yourself? <laughs> no, that was it. That was genuinely it. And, and again, uh, you know, I genuinely had no one. I, I, you know, even I was taking local caddies at uh, every country I went to. I had nobody traveling with me. Um, it genuinely was uh, me, me, myself, and I, and and um, and again, that was yeah, that was kind of part of the course back then. You didn't see too many guys going around with a with a, a big entourage, but you know that all changed when when Tiger came in the scene. You know, he just took it to a, a different level. You know, I think even in his first year, his he, uh, his entourage was thirty or thirty five people at every event. You know, dietitians, nutritionists, you know, physios, doctors, chefs, the lot. Um, you know, which is a different world again. But no, I, I, I do believe that uh, if, if I'd had maybe a manager at that time to, to maybe give me a bit of guidance and maybe somebody to be there or to help with the travelling or to help with your actual preparation, I do think it might made have, might have made a wee difference. Um, we'll never know. But uh, no, at that time, Willie, there was a lot of the guys in my position. It wasn't just me. There was a lot of guys very much... Um, you know, just doing their own thing because, you know, financially we couldn't do it any other way. Aye. Did you ever sound out any more experienced pros on tour for a wee chat? Do you know, I should have, and I've been asked that before, and, 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 and I never really. Um, but I played with a guy, Peter Mitchell, um, who was on tour for many, many years. He's actually on the seniors tour now. Mm -hmm. I played with Peter um, I think it was in the, the one at Portugal, actually, when I was either that was the last or the second last. And he was great, just a just a guy that had been he'd been there, done it all, seen it all. And then we came in and we had lunch after one of the rounds, and, and we must have sat there for a couple of hours, and it was just me and him. And he was just just great, a kind of a real London boy, a sort of London geezer, but but mm -hmm. you know, he'd, he'd done him well and tour over the years, and, and he was a very likable guy. And I, I sat and picked his brains for a couple of hours, but I didn't really have a mentor, or and and to be honest, Willie, they, these guys are, are are too busy trying to do their own thing without really, you know, taking the time out. But but he did, as I say, I know it was only a, a kind of two-hour lunch, but he did say a lot of very very um, sensible things and and just you know try and you know to give me a wee bit of a g up. Um, but no, as I say, it was very much do your own thing. Uh, so now fast forward a good few years, would Alan Tate be the type of guy who would go and select a young inexperienced pro? Oh, hundred percent, and I think now because you know, because I'm not out there, and and you know a lot the guys have got to be selfish. They've got to be very self-minded and selfish about their own career. But you know, my careers went down different different routes. Um, as I say, with the director of golf roles and everything else I've done, so I've got the time now to to spend um with with any kids that are coming through, and and uh, and I think most of them know that. You know, I would be there if if anyone wanted to come and and, and have a chat. Absolutely, I would always keen to put something back in. Excellent, well done. So we've done the Westerwood. You're back playing some pro arms. Where are we at now? Uh, yeah, so so after Westerwood, I, I, I had a, a brief spell at the the Carrick at Loch Lomond. I was there pre-opening as director of golf. Uh, 
So I was there for about a year and a half. And then I was at Dalmahoy in Edinburgh. So that was my, my longest stint. I was at Dalmahoy for 10 years working for Marriott International. Um, very, very busy, busy job. A lot of responsibility, a lot of members, two courses, you know, obviously a well-known course that hosted the Solheim Cup in 1992. So quite a bit of history there as well. So 10 years there, but I still managed in that 10 years to, you know, go and play in pro-ams in my day off or, or whatever, or, or take a few days holiday and go and play in a, a 36 hole or a 72 hole or so. Dalmahoy was was great, as I say, ten good years there. Still keep in touch with a lot of them, a lot of the members, and that really took me up to about 2016, um, where I, I then just went along the road to uh, Deer Park Country Club. I went there as my as my first general manager job, um, and had a had a spell there uh, before joining Golfing for Kids, which I've, I've I've been with for the last two and a half years. Okay, before getting your Golfing for Kids, Alan. For anybody that doesn't understand what a director of golf is, can you explain a wee bit for that role entails? Yeah, so a director of golf's more overseeing um, the whole golf operations at, at the club. Um, so, you know, my roles over the years as director of golf, I, I haven't given a, a paid golf lesson for about over 20 years because it's not really what you do. Uh, the director of golf is very much a, a sort of shirt and tie position. Um, as I say, where you're dealing with all the staff and, and many times you're dealing with the, the food and beverage, the chefs, um, a lot of HR, uh, making sure appraisals are being done, a lot of one-to-ones. And, and at Damahoy, I, I did have a big staff. I, I had about 30 or 35 that reported me directly. And that was from the golf pros to the, the membership guys to the greenkeepers. So it was quite a big role. So really... A director of golf role, you, you really don't have time to be out there teaching or, or doing anything else because you really are managing the people and you're managing the, the total operations of the uh, of the business. And was that a role you enjoyed? I did, yeah. No, no, I really did. Um, I learned a lot. I had a, a very, very good general manager at, uh, at Dalmahoy, uh, Alistair, who... Who you know, he's been a, a, a hotelier all his days, a sort of hotel manager, and I really, although he wasn't, a, he, although he wasn't a golfer himself, he understood that that the whole business, you know, from the the housekeepers to the food and beverage to the leisure club to the golf, and, and I really, really learned a lot off that guy. We had a, we had a few wee Barneys over the years as well, but um, as I, you do, I, as you do, but I had nothing but respect for him, um, and as I say, I really, I really. I, 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 I did learn a lot off them, and, and, and working for Marriott, um, who, who were managing Dalmahoy, Marriott were very, very good at developing people. So I was I put myself in a lot of different training courses, and and I thoroughly enjoyed them because again, it's just adding more strings to your bow. So so again, it was great to have the the GM with all his knowledge, plus working for a company like Marriott, as I say, who were happy to invest and, and develop their own people, whether that was a a kitchen porter on minimum wage or the director of golf or the HR manager, it didn't matter who you were. If you wanted to better yourself, then Marriott would, Marriott would invest in you, which was fantastic. Yeah, great to work for a company like that, yeah? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. So we're now on to the golfing. Is it golfing for kids? Yeah, so so golfing for kids, um, really sort of three areas of the business, which is uh, award-winning equipment for sort of um, three to 14-year-olds, Um also do a, a My Pathway to Golf app, which is fantastic. So a lot of the pros use that um, just now. It's not a coaching aid. It's just a, 
um, a, a, a tool where um, the, the, the coaches can communicate with the kids and the parents through the app. And you can also track the development of the children as, as they're going through the programme. And we also have a, a, a schools programme where we try and go in and, and get into a school for four or, si four or six weeks and try and introduce kids to the game of golf because most 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 schools in Scotland and the UK actually a lot of them are just are still not teaching golf. It's all football, rugby, netball, um, maybe a wee bit of tennis. Um, so so golf still still not uh, a favoured sport. So we're we've been very instrumental in trying to get in there and, and and make it fun for the kids as well. Have a bit of fun with them in the PE hall or out in the grass out at the playground, and then hopefully. If uh, there's been a good success and the kids have enjoyed it, then after that six weeks, we'll hopefully introduce them to a local golf club and they can then continue their development you know, with that local pro or with that assistant. Um, so it's really just to get them interested in the game to begin with. So so we work with a lot of schools um, as well. So so that's that's personally great for me. You're putting something back into the game again and, and uh, you know working with kids, which is great. Very satisfying. I find it astonishing that Scotland... Reputedly, the home of golf doesn't teach golf in schools. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Not, not, not many of them do it. It's, I say, it's all the the, the football or rugby, um, girls with netball, um, hockey, um, but but golf still seems to be on the back burner for a lot of them, um, which is a shame. So, um, so as I say, we we do our best to go in there and and try and get kids kids interested, and then as I say, we we do our best to then introduce them to a local club, and then as I say, to continue that development. And hopefully they progress through to junior and to playing golf for the rest of their days. Well, exactly, you know, or then joining a club for many, many years to come as well, you know, which is always good for the club as well. So, so yeah, we've had a, a fair bit of success um, with that. Well, I think the last I looked in the last two, two and a half years, we've introduced, I think, about 22,000, 23,000 kids to the game through local primary schools. Um and the conversion rate is is a it's a ten percent um, where they actually then want to continue their mm -hmm. development. So so it's safe safe to say in the last couple of years we've actually um, probably just over two thousand kids where they have then from a standing start have never been into just golf are now out there enjoying it at a local club getting lessons and, and hopefully joining up as well. That's a fantastic start. You must be very proud of that. Yeah, very, very proud. Absolutely. As I say, it's nice to put something back into to junior golf and to try and help help grow the kids from grassroots, you know. Uh, it's fantastic because I remember when I was a youngster, as a junior, I just lived for golf. Yeah. A lot of but, older members tend to forget that they were once a junior as well. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was exactly the same. As I said right at the start, you know, I, 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 I just didn't enjoy... Uh, I just enjoyed so much been out there going around Irvine Bogside two three times in my summer holidays and, and never thought anything of it. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't do that now unless I had a buggy. But uh, <laughs> it was no bother back then. That was my childhood growing up in Royal Dornoch. Three golf clubs, a three wood, seven iron, and a putter. So yeah, there you go. Great, fantastic. <laughs> We'd be there in the morning. My dad would pick me up and the putting green in the dark under yep. the those lights. Yep, very days. Yeah, very similar. Absolutely. So you now come to manager at Bunkard. What was all that about, Alan? The, the what? Sorry, manager at Bunkard. So no, well, it's it's so that's a it's the it's the Bunkard Get Back to Golf tour that I set up uh, two years ago, Willie. So I only did that. Um, it's actually last year, two thousand and twenty. Yeah, 
and that was really just um, because of COVID. Um, the, you know, the top amateurs and the pros had nothing to play in. Um, so I had a three o'clock in the morning idea where this light bulb went off in my head about um, getting a tour where uh, the amateurs and the pros um, could play in a 14-day a window. So they could go and um, book their own tea time, uh, choose, what, choo choose what day they want to play, um, choose their own partners, and away they go. And as I say, and they, they did it in a 14-day window. So within having you know even thought of that idea, um, within a week I had eight, eight courses on board because I only thought about this in July last year. So there was only a few few months of the season left. So it was a great concept and one that really worked. And so so the players then go and pay an entry fee each club and they're, and they're basically playing for their own money. Um, so I did it as a one-off, um, but it was so successful and all the pros and the amateurs were saying, can we do this again? And next year, even, you know, even when the pro-arms come back, it's still giving us more opportunity to play. So, so it's open to amateurs with a handicap of 2.4 or better. Uh, and it's open to all pros, so seniors, ladies, juniors, whatever. And uh, this year, um, the, the last event currently on just now at Ladybank. Um, so with 12 events this year and the, the 12 um, winners, they're, go, they're going to a grand final at Dumbarney Links at, at the end of October, where they've got a bit more prize money to pay, play for, a bit of sponsorship prizes. So the guys have all really enjoyed it. And as I say, it's something that I just... Again, it was a nice thing to do. And again, just feeling that you're, you're doing your bit for Scottish golf and, and giving our elite players uh, more opportunity to play competitive golf. So, so as I say, I, I, I originally did it as a one-off last year, but um, already I'm looking at next year and doing it all again. So, because it's a good thing to do. Very good. So do you have a website? People can go on and uh, log on and join. So it. yeah, yeah, it's just my own website. So if they go to uh, .uk, um all my details are in there on the Get Back to the... It's actually sponsored by Bunker. So it's the Bunker Get Back to Golf Tour. And uh, hopefully Bunker will be on again, um, on board again for next year. Fantastic. Now, here's a question. Did you play on the tour? Uh, I so... So last year, I actually won the regional event at Long Nidri. Uh, so that put me in the grand final at Dumbarney Links. And unbelievably, I went and won the, the final at Dumbarney. And I was up against guys like Paul Laurie's son, uh, Craig, uh, Craig or Michael, I can't remember, um, and John Gallagher and Ryan Campbell. So I think I was uh, Jamie McCleary. I think I, was the, I think I was the oldest man in that uh, final by about 13 years. But I managed to, <laughs> I managed to win the final. So... But uh, I haven't, I haven't, uh, the, the last event's on at Ladybank just now, and I'm not actually playing in it, and I haven't won any of the ones this, this uh, time around. So so I'll just be going to Dumbarney for the final this year and looking after the 12 finalists and making sure they have a good day. So there's life in the old dog yet, eh? Well, I think so. I hope so. I like to think that. <laughs> <laughs> what age are you at there, Alan? So I'm 52. I was uh, 52 in April there, so... Uh, yeah, so as I said, said earlier, I still enjoy out there competing. Still feel I can I can get it round, um, which is great, you know. And I and I still very much enjoy it, which is all part of competing. Would you ever think of trying to get your card for a European Junior Tour? Yeah, well, I did. I did uh, three years ago. So when I was forty nine, but because your birthday was coming up that year, you could enter it. So I did go. Um, so you, I went to the regional qualifying, which was out in Portugal. So that was two rounds of golf. Um, well, it was about 90 or 100 guys playing for about 25 spots. Okay. And, then if, and if you make one of those 25 spots, you stay on in Portugal for the following week. 
Um, but then it's 100 for five spots. So it, it's really, really tough. And, and you're playing against guys who have been seasoned European tour pros for 25, 30 years. You know, the, there's a lot of them are no slouches and they can, they can still play. So, so the first time I went, or that only time, uh, I, I missed uh, the PQ1 by a couple of shots. I think I was 72, 73, and I just missed uh, qualifying for the following week by a couple. Um, and then last year it wasn't on because of COVID, and there's still a wee bit of speculation whether it'll be on this year. So I, I, would, I, I think I would go back. I enjoyed it as well. And, and again, I enjoyed actually seeing guys that I hadn't seen for 20, 25 years, you know, you know, guys that I'd played international golf with, the English boys and Swedish boys, the Germans, and, and these are guys who kind of grew up playing the uh, boys and youth golf, represent your countries. And as I say, I hadn't seen many of them for, you know, for a quarter of a century. So from even a social aspect, it was lovely to see people again. Uh, very good. Now, just let's hypothetically speak, Alan, you go and get do a card. Yep. What will the difference between Alan Tate now to Alan Tate way back when you qualified for European Tour? Um, I think I think just having that calmness and and not um, not going out there saying win at all costs. Now I, I think you need to remember, sort of back then that was more that was more only source of income. I mean, I didn't do anything else but but played tournament golf. Whereas now, with everything else I do, I'm in a position now where it's not the same pressure to go out and make a living. So I think I think just that sort of calmness and, and not not worrying that if you don't make a check this week you're not going to be able to pay your your uh, your mortgage or your car you know whereas back then it, it really was that that type of pressure so so it's a little bit different now where if you go out there it's, and get it it's a huge bonus but if you don't it's not going to change your life it's not going to be that big a deal and you can go as you said less pressure and just go and enjoy yourself exactly exactly get enjoy the sun in Portugal exactly. Well, let's hope if you go for it, let's hope you're successful. Well, we'll give it a go if, uh, if and when it comes back around. <laughs> well, time will tell, eh? Absolutely. Right, Alan, as most people know the name Alan Tate, they know you're a, a very well-renowned after-dinner speaker. How did that come about for you? Um, really just by chance. I think it was about 15, 16 years ago. Um, I was actually speaking at a prize given at uh, a PGA Pro-Am and... Uh, you know, the pros usually stand up and I'd like to thank the PJ, I'd like to thank the catering staff, I'd like to thank the greenkeepers and, and that's it, sit down. Uh-huh. And um, it was at Sandy Hills Golf Club and I stood up and uh, next thing I was talking about my three amateur partners that I'd played with that day and, and I told her two or three stories and the next thing I was up there for about 20 minutes and, and everybody was laughing and enjoyed it and I remember Peter Lloyd from the PGA coming up to me after it saying, gosh, where, where the hell did that come from? And, I'm, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Peter. And he went, no, no, it was great. He said, I'm glad that you said that. Look at everybody, you're making everybody laugh and it's, it's good. So then I got a, a call from a captain about oh, two weeks later after that and I'd thought nothing of it. And this guy phoned to say he was the captain of Buchanan Castle Golf Club down in Drimmon near uh, Loch Lomond. And he said that, you know, he'd been at Sandy Hills playing the pro-am and he really quite liked him after dinner stuff and would I mind coming speaking to his uh, captain's dinner, which was a couple of months away. And, and I had that sliding doors moment on the phone. Do I tell him I've never done that? Or, and, or do I just say, oh, go for it? So, I, you know, I said, yeah, OK. So I had two months to prepare for it. And, uh, you know, I went away and sort of came up with a sort of routine and, and I went there that night, obviously very, very nervous because I'd never done it before. But once I got up there, I thoroughly enjoyed it and um, the, the audience enjoyed it so much so I get 
I get there was there was capt captains there from other clubs, and they uh, ended up getting another two or three uh, uh, bookings out of that that one night. So that was really that was really it. I just sort of uh, you know, but I don't I don't promote it too much. It's very much word of mouth, and and um, you know, I, if you've heard me once, you've, you've, you'll you'll hear the same stories. But they're stories that are special to me, and they're stories that I can't really not tell. Um, I remember. Uh, I was at a dinner a couple of years ago in Glasgow and I was I just went to the toilet at the start of the evening. The boy standing next to me said, you're the speaker tonight, big man. I said, yeah, I am. He goes, I've heard you about four times. Please tell me you've changed something. <laughs> and, I was, and, and I was like, no, no, still the same stuff. And he, and he was just laughing. And he says, oh, no, he said, always enjoy it. But but no, listen, it's um, it's it's. I've met a lot of nice people through it. It's uh, it's it's a nice thing to do, and and there's there's no greater sort of feeling when you're up there and it's it's going really well, and you're getting lots of smiling, happy faces, and people come up after saying how much they've enjoyed it. So it's nice to go there, and 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 you know, and and, and I enjoy it as well, you know. So and and touch wood, you know, they they always seem to go pretty well, and and um, always enjoy them. I well, I had the pleasure. I'd been at one of your dinners one night. It was at Coon Bay. Yes, I remember that through Michael Buckin. I remember that it was a, a good night with Craig Brown as well. Craig as well, and I had the good fortune to win the first raffle. Oh, that's that's I remember that. Yeah, and exactly. I picked the yeah. same photo you, we Tiger Woods and Ben Crenshaw. Crenshaw, sure, that's right. Yep. Which uh, very kindly autographed meant hands in my summer house. <laughs> very good. Now I'm sure a lot of people know the story about Tiger Woods, but I feel you kind of have been remiss of me not to ask you this story for viewers. <laughs> Well, it was 1995, uh, and uh, through my, my Tartan Tour ranking, so the year before, I'd finished in the top three in the PGA Tartan Tour Order of Merit, and that used to get you in two or three big events. So the Scottish Open was coming to town at Carnoustie the following year, and I had shot the course record the year before, so it was quite nice to go back to the, the scene of the crime. And, uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the shortened version and not the after-dinner version. Uh, so... The shortened version uh, was was very so. I went down to the tee about eleven o'clock, and I, I always this was for the the practice day on the Tuesday, and I had booked a time at for eleven thirty one, just me and my caddy, and we got down there about eleven o'clock, and there was nobody about. I mean, the stands were empty. There was one man and his dog standing at the first tee, and uh, and I said to my caddy, "Listen, there's nobody about here." I said, "If you know, there's nobody in front, there's nobody behind." I think we'll just tee off early and we'll just go. And 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 he says, aye, okay. And I said, well, nip into the players' lounge and see if anybody's putting their name up next to us. And if they haven't, we'll just tee off early and we'll just go. So he came back a couple of minutes later and he was laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? He says, well, two guys have put their name up beside you. And I says, what's funny about that? He says, well, one's a Ben Crenshaw who had just won the Masters three months before and, and, and a massive hero of mine. And he says, and the other one's this T. Woods. <laughs> and I was like that. You're at it. We caddy was always up to no good. We we playing wee pranks, and I said, "We man, I'm not in the mood for this." And he says, "Well, listen, don't shoot the messenger. It's in there. Eleven thirty-one. Take Crenshaw and Woods." And I'm like, "Ah, whatever." And I didn't didn't give it any more thought. And then, oh, geez, I just get a sixth sense, and a couple of minutes later, I look round, and honestly, there's. I don't know. There must have been like a thousand people walking towards the first tee, and, and I'm thinking, what? Is, thinking, I hope this isn't what I think it is. And then, sure enough, the next thing that they, they all start milling around the first tee, and out comes the crowd, and up walks Ben Crenshaw and, and Tiger, and they walk onto the tee, and 
Crenshaw came up to me and said, hi, he said, I'm, I'm uh, Ben Crenshaw, and I'm like, I think I know who you are, mate. Uh, and, and he said, you know, we would would like to play with you today. Are you are you, are you okay with that? And um, and and it just happened so quickly. And uh, we teed off, and, and they went first, and they ripped it down, ripped them down the middle of the fairway. And I stood up and hit a two iron, and I'm not joking, Willie. I must have hit about a foot behind the ball, and I, and I, and I completely, completely duffed it. And I get a sympathetic round of applause, and I cleared. I cleared the Barry Burn by about a yard. And for any of your listeners that have never played Carnoustie, the Barry Burn's 45 yards off the first Carnoustie. So that's how big a duff it was. Um, and then, so it was a bit carnage to begin with. But then uh, but then I ended up playing the full 18 with them. An amazing experience. And, and to be fair, I was more intimidated playing with Crenshaw because, you know, he just won the Masters. He was a hero of mine. And we didn't really know enough about Tiger at that time. Um, I think uh-huh. he's just... His first US amateur, so he was still an amateur at that time. But even even then, uh, you know, I, I've said on many occasions, I've never, I've never seen or heard the, the golf ball, the, the noise coming off the club face like that that I did with Tiger. I'd never witnessed anything like that, and and that was his first ever round of golf in Scotland. He'd, he'd never been, he'd never had played in Scotland before, and it was quite windy that day. Kind of he actually lost a couple of balls because he was hitting driver off a couple of holes where he should never have been hitting driver and um, so he was kind of hitting these kind of low, low sort of long roping iron shots um so so he, he incredibly he, he did struggle a little bit and you could see that you know links golf wasn't his uh you know it certainly wasn't you know he's, he's 40 at that time and then uh. then my goodness 18 months Later or two years later, he's winning the Open at, at St Andrews by 15 shots, and he's, he's you know, and he, you know, well, I don't need to make a case for for Tiger, but uh, it was an amazing experience playing with him, and he was a really really nice young guy. He'd only been 19, 20 then; I'd have been 25, 26, and okay. very very mature. And, and Crenshaw was just an absolute gentleman to play with. He was just, uh, I mean, they call him Gentle Ben was his nickname all those years, and but Crenshaw was just fantastic to play with. So it was a a very very special day, but one after after I got over my duff at the first, I was fine. <laughs> I think the first ten years were a good to most people that day, though. I think so, absolutely. It, it often says, Alan, that you should never meet your heroes. Was that not the case with Ben? Uh, oh no, absolutely. He, I'd say he was he was everything and more that I ever thought he would be, and, and he and he just took a real interest in me and everybody, and and it was genuine, you know, and he was. He was just asking a lot of questions when we were around the golf course and just things in general, you know, culture of Scotland and, and everything else. And he, he loves Scotland and the, and the Scottish fans loved him over the years. You know, you know, for a, a lot of your, your listeners who are maybe slightly younger age, you know, I mean, Crenshaw back in the 70s and 80s, he was a huge favourite with the Scottish crowds. People loved him because he really embraced the history of the game and he embraces Scotland. And people just loved and warmed to him, and and, and I was very very lucky to to spend um, four or five hours with him in the golf course, and and then you know and, and speaking to him for for that length of time was just wonderful. Magical memories that will live with you forever, eh? Absolutely. Oh yeah, every time. So while we're speaking about Carnoustie, Alan, tell us about his course record, because if anybody's played Carnoustie, knows sixty four is an amazing score. Yeah, it was just uh, that, that was in the, the Daily Express National Pro-Am, which was a, a four-round event back in the day. Um, a bit like the Dunhill now, you, you know, there was sort of 25 teams on each course. So we played the Burnside, Panmuir, 
um, Carnoustie, and then the leading pros and uh, teams would qualify for a final round at Carnoustie on the last day. And, you know, I, I was doing well after the first two rounds. I had two good rounds at Panmure and Burnside. And then I went to the championship course on the third day. And, and you know, I, I played the championship course probably six or seven times before that. And my best score was like 75, 76. So it wasn't really a favourite of mine. And But okay. I remember thinking that day, you're in good shape in the tournament here. You know, if you can get it round here in 73, 74, you're going to be, um, you know, if not leading, you're going to be in the, in the top two or three going out in the last day tomorrow. And, you know, they're just... Get away to an unbelievable start. I remember that I birdied the first. I remember they birdied the third, fourth, and then I eagled the sixth, Hogan's Alley. So all of a sudden I'm five under after six or something silly. And but I even remember at that time thinking, oh, that's great. I've got a cushion now. I, you know, I, I'm I'm still not thinking, you know, I, I'm you know five under after six. I'm still thinking, well, that's great. You know, I can hopefully shoot 71, 72, 73. You know, I've just got that nice cushion. Um, and then I remember I eagled the 12th, um, which was a par five. Uh, they sometimes play it as a four for the open, sometimes as a five. And then uh, only at that point I realized, no, something really special is happening here. Um, and that was it. You know, I, I actually bogeyed 16, the par three, but everybody birdies the 16th at Carnoustie. Uh, uh, sorry, bogeys the 16th at Carnoustie. It's such a tough par three. So I, I bogeyed there, and then I get two very good pars at 17 and 18 when my, my heart was coming out of my chest realizing that uh, I'm, I'm on the verge of on the verge of history here but but I, it was just a it was just a great uh and I don't mean this in a big-headed way and I, and I hate saying this without sounding uh, that I'm, I'm I'm bumming about it but but it, it wasn't um there was nothing crazy happened in the round you know people have said to me over the years oh you must have hold five 20 footers you must have hold a bunker shot you must have hold a wedge and I never did any of that you know it was just a it was just a, a great round of golf and how, how golf's meant to be played at that level. You know, I drove the ball well that day. I had a lot of good iron shots and I took I just took my chances. I mean, I think that the longest putt of hold was about 12, 13 feet. You know, it wasn't anything crazy. So it was just a proper round of golf. And, um, you know, and, and ever since that, again, I've, I've had another probably, I don't know, I've probably played it in competitions another seven or eight times. And I think my best score is 72, you know, so it's, it was just, <laughs> One of those, one of those rounds where it was um, a very, very special day, and, and and one that I'm very, obviously, very proud of. The stars aligned for you that day. Yeah? Absolutely. So take you back to the 18th tee. Yeah. What, what was you thinking? Do I need four, or do I need birdie for this score? What was you thinking? No, I knew I needed four. I mean, I was pretty good with the history of golf, and I knew that in uh, 1975 at the Open, uh, Jack Newton and Tom Watson had shot 65, and that was uh, that had stood, and there had been other pros had equaled it um, since then. So I did know that nobody had ever uh, done 64, and, and that day I remember that the last was into the breeze, and I, had, I actually had a good drive down the middle, and I always remember my second shot. I always remember I had 213 yards to the the pin. And I thought, just take a three iron and and hit it as hard as you can, and you know, just you know, just 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 swing at it, and and don't try and fade it, don't try and draw it, just aim for the flag, hit it as hard as you can. And I actually thinned it, but it was a great thin. It was one of those ones. It was a, it was actually a really good thin, where uh -huh. you know I've caught enough of the ball that it's, it's actually went the same distance as I was hoping to hit it. Um, so although I thinned it, you know, when I looked up in the air and I thought, no, that that's going to be fine as long as as long as I'm over the burn at the the green, 
you know, that's going to be somewhere in the vicinity. And sure enough, it finished about 20 feet by the hole. So a trifle, a trifle lucky there because, you know, a thin means that, you're, you know, you've only just connected where, you know, you're, you're not a million miles off, you know, hitting a really, really bad shot there. So I was lucky that I got away with that one. Um, but again, that was just the, the pressure of trying trying to get a trying to get a four at the last, and fortunately I managed to roll the putt down quite close and, and knock it in. So it was just a a great uh, a great moment. And I always remember I was staying in a caravan in Arbroath that week, um, playing in that tournament. And I remember driving in the next morning, and it was one of those weird, silly, defining moments. I was in Carnoustie Main Street, and there was an A board outside the paper shop saying um, Assistant Pro smashes course record at Carnoustie and it was on this A board outside the paper shop and I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in the car going, hey, that's me. I said, look at that. I've made the I've made the pavement in Carnoustie, you know, so I had a wee laugh about that. And feeling 10 fit tall. <laughs> What's that? You were feeling 10 fit tall. Oh, I really was, absolutely. No, it was it was fantastic. I saw again I just a a very special day and, and one that I you know I'm proud to say I had that course record for 23 years which is and nowadays is a long long time to have a course record you know nowadays a course record lasts maybe oh, six months and, and it's away but uh, and then a, a certain Mr Tommy Fleetwood in 2017 came along and uh, he, he went one better shot 63 but I wasn't I genuinely wasn't bothered and, and I, I, I was over in Budapest for the weekend that weekend and okay and uh, I remember my phone and my emails and my Facebook started going absolutely crazy. And I'm thinking, oh, what's happened here? And it was all, the, you know, and people said to me, big man, I hope you're okay. I hope you're all right. Is everything, you know, and I'm like, what? And then I realised what had happened. It was, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty funny, actually. And I was cool about it. I'm thinking, geez, I've had 23 great years of uh, milking this, you know, and, and, and I was just glad it wasn't like a, a Carnoustie member or somebody that plays off scratch or one that had done it. It was great that it was, Tommy Fleetwood, you know, who I think is wonderful. And I think he's, you know, again, for me, he's he's definitely going to win a major at some point. And he seems a really nice guy as well. So I, I, I had no qualms about it whatsoever. I think more folk were worrying about it than I was, you know. Because <laughs> you see, 23 years of members. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you, you're also into some radio work and on-course commentary. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a shame the last sort of, two or three years. It's sort of, it died away a little bit. I think COVID put a, 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 a stop to that. Um, but I've really enjoyed yeah working yeah, usually for BBC Radio Scotland doing the, the on-course commentary. And uh, and doing on-course commentary is great fun because you're you're thinking of the people driving in their cars and you're trying to you're trying to describe a, a, a scene for them. So you're talking on oh, these standing here and he's wearing green trousers and a, a white shirt and, and black, you know, and you're trying to, you know, and the wind's buffing from the left and what, so you're trying to help paint that picture, but you're trying to make it quite exciting for them as well. And, and I really enjoyed that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I commentated in, in the Open, um, commentated in the uh, Ryder Cup at Glen Eagles, the Solheim Cup at Glen Eagles, um, and the Scottish Opens as well, and, and the Scottish Opens were great, you know, with Castle Stewart, Loch Lomond, Royal Aberdeen, Gullen, um, and it's been great, and, you know, for me, having played, you know, a tiny little bit on that European tour, as we talked about earlier, for me, it's the sec it's the next best thing to actually be in, in the ropes, walking, you know, t 10, 15 yards from the guys, and, and you're, comment you're commentating on, on them, and you're you're coming down the stretch with them on a Sunday and, and you know, it's it's so exciting just you're maybe in the last group or the second last group at the Open or 
a Ryder Cup singles, and it's so so exciting. You really get you really get involved yourself, and and for me that comes across when you're you're, you're then speaking into the microphone, and you know you, you get quite excited yourself and quite passionate, and I like to think that that comes through when you're doing it. But it's great fun. I've I just hope it comes back at, at some point um, that we can start doing all that again because I thoroughly enjoyed uh, doing the commentary. Going back to that night at Cruden Bay, you told me, well, you never told me, you told everybody a story, the two young lads you interviewed for radio. You remember that story? I do remember it, yeah, absolutely. That can was... you tell us that one? Uh, yeah, so so we're standing there and it was at, uh, I think it was at Kernesty and it was uh, two wee boys um, standing at the side of the road and um, one of them, so I, 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 the, the sort of uh, commentary team came to me and said, where are you, Alan? What's your position? I said, I'm actually out in the, the main street. And I said, I've got two, two little kids here. Do you want me to do a wee bit with them? I said, aye, that would be great. So um, I said to this uh, I said to this wee kid, so is this your first Open? Yeah, yeah. This, and what do you play off? I play off 23. And, and, and so the guys around me are saying, oh, this is great, big man. Keep it going, keep it going. And then I said to the other wee boy, I said, what about you? And he says, oh, yeah, I've never been to Carnoustie before. I can't wait to get out there and walk around there. And as I say, they're in me here. This is great, Alan. Keep it going. Keep it going. And I said, who will you be following today, wee man? And he said, I'll be following Rory McElroy. And I says, and why will you be watching him? And he says, because I think he's beeping magic. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and Rob McLean or, or whoever it was came into me and says, well, big man, I, I hope you've enjoyed working for Radio Scotland because that'll be you done. So the wee man swore live on radio. Oh, I'd seen how good he thought McElroy was. And I couldn't, I, could, I looked at him and I'm like, I can't even believe you've just done that wee man. But we'd such, we'd such a laugh about it that night. It was funny. Oh, so presuming you kept a straight face that even a wee face. Oh, yeah, I had to, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was funny. The, the, the phone lines were, were rather hot. <laughs> so back to your after dinner speaking who have you enjoyed listening to as a speaker so my, so my favourite that I've heard uh, is a guy called John Gagan uh, John used to play with uh, Motherwell a very colourful career and uh, John for me is the best out there I mean he, John could probably be booked three four times a week all year round he's, he's so popular but uh, John's great very very funny very animated runs about the room and He's funny, John, because when you sit next to him at the top table, when you're having your meal uh, before the, the, the after dinner starts, you know, he's, he's so quiet and almost quite nervous. And, you know, he sits there like a quiet wee, wee guy. And, and I remember the first time I, I worked with him, I thought, God, this guy's going to, this guy's going to fall on his backside tonight. He's so nervous and he's tear. And when he got up, it was like sticking a Duracell battery in him. And he, next thing he's bouncing about the room and, and his stories are very, very funny about when he played with Motherwell and under the guidance of uh, Jock Wallace, a great manager, and and uh, he's just very, very funny. So, but again, you know, you know somebody like John will, will do that. That's that's his full time job, you know. That and okay, and somebody like John, although he's got all the great stories, you know, he's very clever. That um, a lot of the stuff that he'll be talking about will be up to date and original. So he'll be talking about, you know, Brexit or he'll be talking about the, if he was talking tonight, he'd be talking about the, the, the petrol, you know, um, shortage. And, and and that's very, very clever. And that's somebody where I would be very much out of my comfort zone doing that. But uh, but John's got the time to do that. And he's got the, you know, because that's all he does. So but he's very, very good. And I've enjoyed Willie Young, the, the ex-referee. Willie's uh, a good pal of mine. And Willie's very good. And also a lawyer as well. So Willie's got great tales about 
you know, refereeing Rangers Celtic matches and then and also dealing with the, the wee Neds in the court, you know, when he's, he's, he's in there, you know, defending somebody. And so Willie's very good and he brings something different to the table. So Mark, I've heard a lot of good ones over the years, but they're the two for me that stand out. Okay. Well, what would you say is the funniest story you've heard from somebody dinner speaking? Um, probably one of mine, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that can be better than your ones. <laughs> well, you've put me on the spot there. I might be need to think about that. Um, okay. You, you just you hear that many. I, uh, I do the one I do remember was Alan Ruff. And I remember Ruffy, the great, uh, the great legend of um, being a goalkeeper for Scotland. I remember Ruffy saying when they were playing Brazil, and uh, they're, they're out there in the World Cup, and uh, Zico uh, has got a free kick, and uh, he hits this free kick, and it comes bending over the wall, and Ruffy goes, to, he, Ruffy's leaping across the the goal uh, to try and get it, and the ball hits off the bar, and it comes back out to Zico, and Zico volleys it. Uh, off the rebound, and Ruffy manages to turn it round the post. And Dave Nery goes up to Ruffy and says, "Ruffy, what a save that was!" And Ruffy says, "That was me going for his first shot." <laughs> <laughs> so, I know, I know, it'll be embellished somewhat, but I always like that one as well when Ruffy tells that one. So that was uh, typical Scottish football for me. Oh, it's funny if you can hear a story and just sit down and everybody, well, I thoroughly enjoyed the night and everybody was in stitches laughing at the antics of you and Craig. Aye, okay, Craig was good. He, he, he fair-wittered on that night, but he was thoroughly enjoying it and he was good and everybody was appreciating him, so he was uh, he was good. So, <clears throat> once uh, Craig starts, it's difficult to get him to stop. Aye, but, but he was so comfortable, you know, again, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and again, that that's happened to me. You get up there and... and you're having such a good night. You're enjoying it yourself. You can see all the faces. You can see the body language out in the out in the floor. Everybody's enjoying it. So you'll end up telling another couple that you weren't going to tell because, you know, the the, the captain or the guy at the top table said, "Can you maybe do thirty five minutes or forty minutes?" And then you, you have a quick look at the the clock up in the the clubhouse and you see you're at your forty minutes, but you see the guys are enjoying it and you're enjoying it and, and nobody objects you telling another couple of good another couple of good wee stories and. Uh, Craig, Craig was like that that night. He was thoroughly enjoying speaking in Aberdeen or just outside Aberdeen, and I think he had a few pals in the room as well. So, so he was very comfortable. And he was very good that night, you know. And um, yeah, just not every day you get sitting next to a Scotland manager with a lot of great stories as well, you know. It's true. I think you guys did a brilliant job. And for anyone that hasn't been to a sportsman's dinner, you really should make the effort to go along and listen to these guys. They're absolutely priceless to listen to. Good. Thanks, Willie. No problem. All right, Alan, a few questions for you. In golf, what do you think has been the most memorable thing you've done? Uh, so it's definitely a toss-up between um, playing with Tiger and the course record. It has to be the course record at Carnoustie. I think that's, you know, that, the Scottish boys was a huge thing for me, winning that. Uh, that was massive. And that, as I said, said to you earlier, that, that sort of, changed my life in, a, in many respects. That was the start of, of a golfing journey. Um, that was very, very memorable. But, but I think I think the course record at Carnoustie has to has to go to the top of the league. Uh, as I would say, shooting 64 on Carnoustie at any given day is some golf. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. All right, my next question for you. What do you think was the hardest shot in golf you ever had to play? 
Uh, oh, without a doubt, it's the and, and I'm still rubbish at it to this day. Is the sort of uh, the sort of 40, 50 yard bunker shot. You know, it's just a, a, a nightmare of a shot to play that. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a tough one to play, especially if you're under pressure. And I, you know, and again, I look at some players, you know, in the, the tours now, and they make these things look so easy. Um, but for me, that was always that was always a tough one, and, and I would never ever uh, be be envious of um, seeing them digging into a bunker 40, 50 yards, um, just a horrible, horrible distance to try and you know clip enough of it that you're you're controlling it. But the times you get in there and catch it a wee bit thin and you end up 50 yards over the back or you get it a wee bit heavy and you just get it out and then you know you're you're really struggling after that so but I know I'm not alone there I know that you know many times you hear people talking about that's the hardest shot in golf and I would agree with that oh it certainly is what was your favorite club in your bag uh, my favorite club I would say has always been my driver I've always been a, a fairly good driver of the ball um, as I said earlier not not the longest but not the shortest probably kind of middle of the road with my peers on like in Scotland and stuff like that, but um, always pretty pretty straight with the driver and uh, always always tended to hit maybe a, a nice little sort of hold up fade, which was always a nice good uh, safe shot to have. So um, yeah, so I would I would have to say the driver's been pretty good to me over the years. Okay, which club could you improve the most on? Do you think? I I think probably like most people, I would say putting. Um, not not a bad hole or outer, not bad from kind of three, four, five feet, but certainly the 10, 12 footers, which I call them the money putts, that's what that's what makes the difference between, you know, a, a, a 65 and a 72. You know, you, you, you get half a dozen them in a round, then that is what you're going to shoot. And, and you know, the, the standard, again, of the guys holing out from sort of, 15, 12, 10 feet is just astonishing now. And I've, I've definitely probably like most um, most pro golfers at my level, that would be somewhere we could have said we could have hold a lot more putts there. But again, you have to be out there hitting hundreds and possibly thousands of putts a week to, to, to get that consistency, to be holding 10, 12, 15 footers for fun. And, and I never practiced as hard as that. I was too busy playing golf. And as we said earlier, going around the golf course and, dropping two or three balls, but but you'll get guys like, you know, you'll get top pros now will stand in a putting green for hours and hours and hours hitting 10 footers, 12 footers, 14 footers. Uh, and I, I would I just would never have done it, you know. So so I can't I can't grumble that that was possibly where I could have um, developed and, and done better. Okay. Your favourite course you've ever played? Um, favourite course in Scotland is actually um, Skibo Castle uh, up there in the Highlands. Um, very, very lucky to play in a, a pretty exclusive pro-am there um, every year. Uh, it's not just the golf course, it's the whole golf experience. Uh, just a wonderful uh, golf experience um, from the, the minute you arrive to the minute you leave. And the most beautiful setting up there in Sutherland just before Dormach, just as you go over that beautiful bridge. So the whole thing about Skibo, the mystique of it, been Andrew Carnegie's house at the castle, you know, where Madonna get married. It's just a, a pretty magical place. So so I think, um, yeah, it, it's Skibo for me um, all day long. A wee footnote there, Alan, when I was a young lad living up in Dornick, we used to live 500 yards from the castle. Oh, wow. Beautiful. So that's, that's where I grew up and played my golf at. Well, you know how beautiful it is then up there. Oh, it's just magic. Magical. What about other courses you played in European Tour? 
Um, so European tour. Well, I was very lucky to play in the in two um, uh, two of the the Bartleys uh, Scottish Open Invitationals at Loch Lomond. So managed to play in that twice, um, and I thought Loch Lomond was just absolutely stunning. Uh, just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful, wonderful golf course. Um, and I'd say that was part of the the European tour then. Uh, and again, you lots of big crowds there. The, the Loch Lomond was always a a good social one. You'd all the kind of Glasgow punters getting the bus and the, the, a few drinks. So there was always a, a great buzz about the tented village. And you know, I think it was the sixth or the seventh that went along by the the water. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the tented villages were up on the left, and you could just get a, a real buzz of the noise coming off the crowds, and, and it was just just great. So yeah, it would be, it would be remiss of me not to mention Loch Lomond. And, and again, very very pleased that it's in Scotland as well. You know, you've mentioned the European tour there. Um, but you know that was for me the best one I played uh, possibly, and I, I loved South Africa. I made my debut out in South Africa. That was um, my, my very first event. The the Gary Player and the Lost City courses down there at uh, Sun City, and okay. um, absolutely stunning, stunning place, stunning setup. Um, so that so they were up there as well. I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed them. I'm just sitting listening to Alan, and a passion about your golfers coming through very evidently. Well, it's as I say, it's it's difficult not to be. I'm 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 a very passionate Scot as well, and I'm very proud of our heritage in the game of golf. I'm very proud of our history. I'm very proud of the the wonderful golf courses we've got in in, in Scotland, and and you know, and it's just uh, yeah, you know, if, if it were guaranteed weather, I I wouldn't go anywhere. I would I would be happy going up to the Highlands or east coast of Scotland or back down to the west for a few you know it just if you were guaranteed weather I just I just love I love our country I think you know I, I love the people I love our our hospitality our restaurants our bars I just I think I think we we um you know we are a wonderful golf destination and it's, it's you know it makes you know it's no surprise to me the amount of uh, you know the amount of money that the golf generates to the country and the people coming from America and all over the world that come here and, and experience just a, a wonderful time. And I, I'm very, very proud of that. And, and, and I'm proud to have played a, a small part in, in golf in Scotland. Well, I would agree with that 100%. Right, on the flip side, Alan, we spoke of the best courses. What's the hardest course you ever played? Uh, so the hardest course I've ever played was actually when I had my scholarship in America. It was a place called Waterwood National, which was in, uh, in Texas. And uh, you know they, they do the slope rating, so the so that the par of the course was seventy one, and the slope rating was something like seventy eight point five. It was oh, just wow. it was so so tough. Um, you know, and we're going back, you know, late eighties here when it was still Balata balls and, and metal woods had just come in. But the course I remember it was about seven thousand six hundred yards, and they had us right back. And I remember one par three in particular. I think it was the thirteenth. And it was almost identical to the, the 17th at Sawgrass. But the only difference here was that the 17th at Sawgrass is about 125 yards. You can go on there with a wedge or a nine. And this hole was genuinely 240 yards. Oh, there, was, wow. there was no bailout. It was, it was, you, could, you could stand there all day hitting balls and, and there was nowhere for you to go. And I remember I hit driver at it. It was into a tiny wee breeze. And I managed to get it on the banking uh, of the... The other side, and I was delighted. Chipped up, and made four, and felt as if I'd won the lottery. Oh, great! Uh, guys were running up cricket scores. So that was a, a brutal, brutal golf course, um, which was out in Texas. 
And I think for me in Scotland, um, for me, it's uh, I think Muirfield. I think Muirfield, when it's set up for a championship, if it's set up for the the, the British Amateur or it's set up for the Open, uh, you go and play Muirfield maybe a week before or a week after that's had one of these big events. And gosh, Muirfield for me is is, is brutally tough, especially a little 15, 20 mile an hour win. So uh, I just I think Carnoustie is a little bit more forgiving um, than Muirfield. I think Carnoustie. The rough isn't quite severe. Uh, I know it was when um, Harrington and uh, I think Harrington won, and, and when Paul Laurie won in '99, the course was absolutely brutal at Carnoustie. But I think they learned from that because, you know, they got a lot of bad publicity about how tough it was and how unfair it was. Um, but for me, I think Muirfield's on a on a breezy day is, is, is you'll get is, you'll not get much tougher. Uh, it's a great tough course. Okay. <clears throat> I was going to ask you what's the best shot you ever hit in golf, but you might have just explained it with that driver at bar three. <laughs> I, I tell you, I, I think my my best shot was definitely it was at the the eighteenth at San Rocky Club in Spain when I, I knew I needed to make four to get my to get my tour card. Um, and the last at San Rocky is quite, or they've redesigned it, but it used to be a, a slight dogleg round the round the lake. And uh, I remember I'd had a decent drive and. There's water up to the right of the green, I think, and there's water all the way down the left. And I remember I had a five or a six iron in my hand from about 170, 180. And uh, I, I knew hit the green here, two part, you've got your European tour card. And it was such a defining moment thinking this, you know, I've, I've dreamed of this moment uh, all my days about getting my, my European tour card. Um, and I remember I hit a great uh, shot, lovely wee fade into about 15 feet from the hole. And, my heart really was coming out of my chest, but I just—it was such a massive moment in my life, and um, it was a good shot, and managed to convert the, the two putts, and, and as I said, got the thirty-second card. But unfortunately, it kind of stopped there, and that was the, you know, that was the start of my year on tour. But as I say it pretty much didn't really come to much. But I just remember it was a, a good shot and one that I was very proud of under that pressure. That was an amazing shot under pressure. Yeah, well, no, it was, and it was, and I, and I had struggled. I, 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 the last day, I think I knocked it out in 40 and I had went, you know, I'd gone into that last round, I was lying like 16th and, and I'm not sure I agree with this, but when they were at tour school then, they used to put leaderboards up uh, sort of every four or five holes and it would tell you who was leading, but it would also put at the bottom projected last card and they would put a, a figure. And I remember I'd, I'd struggled in the front nine and I remember coming off the ninth and it said, projected last card plus four or something and I was plus four and I've got nine really tough holes at San Rocky to play um, under that kind of pressure so it was a it was a very very good back nine knowing knowing that I was I was on that mark um, and knowing what I had to do so bye so that shot was uh, was a, was a, 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 a as you said earlier I think I, I, my first beer didn't hit the sides after I came off that 18th screen put it that way <laughs> you must have been good mental strength as well for Alan being able to do that back nine. Yeah, no, no, not mentally. I was always pretty good. I was always I enjoyed pressure situations and a very much never give up mentality. You know, I could be you know playing match play three down forty go. I, I I would still be hanging in there, taking you know a hundred percent on every shot. And because it's just such a crazy game, you you never know what's round the corner. And I've always said that even to. To young ones growing up, you know, never ever give up in golf because it's such a crazy, crazy game that anything could happen. It really can. So although you're three down or four down with five to go, you know, 
there's still a bit of work to do, and, and all of a sudden you get a couple of birdies, and then your opponent they start getting the pressure felt because they've been up, and now they're it's slipping away from them. So, so yeah, mentally I was always pretty good, as I say, and, and it's there's a lot of be said for for you know not giving up and not letting your opponent see that your your body language is changing and and because when I used to see that I would think I've got I've got them here because look at them you know I'm I'm three three up after nine and they're gone you can see it in their body language or they're they're hitting their ball off the green or they're slamming clubs and at that point you know you've got them and if you can try and you know keep keep that away from them and show them that you're you're hanging in there and you're still going through your routine. They've not quite rattled you yet, you know. So I've all, I was always trying to, um, you know, adopt that uh, mentality, and I would I would say that to, to young ones now. They don't they don't know what you're thinking, and you don't know what they're thinking. So don't let them, you know, try and get in your head. To the old adage, winners never quit, and quitters never win. That's exactly it. Absolutely. Right, you've got a four ball to play, Alan. Who would you have as your other uh, three partners? Ooh, so. Well, I would have said Tiger, but I've, I've worn that T-shirt, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to allow them to be. Is this uh, past or present? Are they alive or are they? You, uh, you can choose anybody from the world of golf, alive, dead, whatever you want. So, so all-time hero was was Jack Nicklaus. Um, so it would need to be need to be Jack Nicklaus. Um, I would have to probably, uh, oh, I'd probably have to be Seve. Um, I played. One hole we said it went worth, and, and I, I, I never really spoke to him, and I never really saw him properly. So I would have to be Jack Seve, and um, again, one of my favourites is, is going to be Tom Watson. So one European, two Americans, and I think that would be a pretty good four ball and a good links course in Scotland. I would enjoy that. Well, that was my next question. Which course would you play that four ball on? Um, I would probably have to, as much as it's not my favourite golf course, but it's probably. I think it's an obvious answer. I would need to be going on. I would need to be walking over the 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 Swilkin Bridge at the old course at St Andrews. So, um, as I say, I think to to play a, a round of golf and in, in esteemed companies such as that, it would have to be at the home of golf. Aye, I think it'd be quite fitting, wouldn't it? It certainly would. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking about golf, have you any rounds of golf that you would like to play again for any reason? Um. I would have to say the it wasn't the year I played. So the, the Scottish Open came to Carnoustie twice and I played in it twice. And it wasn't the year I played with Tiger and Crenshaw. Um, but in the second round of that event, uh, I remember coming off the 12th and my name was on the leaderboard. Um, I was lying about 6th or 7th. I think Wayne Riley won it that year, if I remember. And I was lying about 6th or 7th and this was the second round. And I, I did all of a sudden get a little bit nervous, and I really I played the last the last five at Carnoustie um, so defensively, I really did, and ended up I bogeyed the last five in a row, um, and purely just by as I said, you know, all of a sudden seeing my name, oh, let's just get in, let's just you know, you're you're going to be in contention, so don't do anything silly. And, and it was crazy because I'd played really well up until then. And, you know, and, and bogeying the last five at Carnoustie sounds a disaster, but it was quite windy that day. And uh, 15, 16 and 18 were all into the wind and, and 17 was downwind. And I, I finished with five bogeys and I, and I get back to the my wee hotel that night and it turned out that I'd missed the cut by one. And so I'd went from walking off that 12th 
all, you know, being in the front page of the leaderboard, and then and then just did the totally total wrong game plan for for the last five six holes, and uh, it, it cost me. And, and I would love to have, I'd love to have played the, that that final two days because it was a, a great field then. I think Faldo was playing and Sevy was playing and. It was a really good field, and it was one that really annoyed me for a long, long time. I was annoyed at myself because I, my game plan had kind of changed ha halfway around when there was no need to. Was that a different change of mindset, was it? Yeah, it totally was. It just went from being almost um, kind of in, in total control to been playing, playing the last few holes quite negatively. And, and you can't play the last five at, or six at Carnoustie and, and, and be trying to poke it round. You know, you've got to take the shots on. Um, it's, you can't just uh, poke it around those last few holes. You, you have to commit and, and hit the shots because they're, they're long holes and, and you've got to be on your game. So it was, it was just the wrong the wrong play. I uh, no good. I was getting, my next question was any regrets, but you might have just answered it. <laughs> well, again, I, I suppose that that would be a wee bit of a regret. You know, I'm sure there's been other rounds where you've made the wrong decision at the wrong time and it's cost you. But but. All in all, now nah, you know what I've, I've I've kind of I've given it given it my, my all over my years. Whether it was a director of golf role, whether it was after dinner speaking, whether it was a golf tournament, I always feel of or setting up my own wee back to golf tour. I've always sort of given it hundred percent and and dedicate myself to whatever I'm trying to do. So so if you do that, you, you can't you can't have too many regrets, really. No, none whatsoever. Who was your best friend in golf, Alan? Um. Best friend in golf. I've I've got quite a few, and I wouldn't like to annoy any of them by picking one out. So, I'm I'm probably going to have to sit sit in the fence with that one. Um, but with the year I had on the European tour, I was I was I roomed a lot with uh, Scott Anderson, who Scott, as you well know, is a, an Aberdeen boy. Played uh, played a lot of his golf out of King's Links, and Scott actually won the the Rookie of the Year. Um, when I when I was on tour, so so Scott's been a good good friend for for many years. Um. But oh, there's been so many of them, Willis, and so many. I've been lucky to have a lot of good guys and, and girls um, who are, I would regard as good friends over yeah, the years that are golf. What's the biggest joke you've ever played in a fellow pro? Um, you might drop your selling it here. <laughs> <laughs> actually, with Scott Henderson in Madeira. Um, so I actually, Scott was out playing and I was getting home that night because I'd missed the cut. And this is pretty disgusting, but uh, I cut off all my toenails and put them in his pillow slip in his room. <laughs> <laughs> and I left them for him coming in that night. So, I, and again, there's no real mobiles or social media that. So the very next event, I see him making a beeline for me in the practice ground. And I'm like, he's going, Tate, that was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. I can't believe you've done that to me. And I'm like, ah, well, big man, don't worry about it. So we'll always, always have a wee laugh about that. <laughs> and did he get his own back? Oh, he did. I, I'm not going to tell you. It was even grosser. So it was even more disgusting. So I'm not going to, not going to spare your listeners that story. I came in the cell and what goes wrong comes round there. I'll, I'll tell you privately one day. You've been pleased to hear we're almost finished. No bother. Right, I want to get your views on the Ryder Cup that just passed. What was your take on it? Well, no one likes a, a smart Alec, but I was on a couple of podcasts last week and uh, before it all started, and, and I predicted a, a fairly comprehensive win for the Americans. I certainly didn't um, predict 19-9, um, but and, and again, it's, it's nothing against the Europeans. I just I thought everything 
Um, you know, you're, you're getting in there against, uh, you know, a, a team of 12 who have got eight players in the top 10, the world rankings. Um, the the uh, captain Stricker done an amazing job with the golf course. And, and I did think that the lack of European crowd would be huge. You know, it, would, it was really, you know, sort of 95% Americans there. I just felt there was so much going going in the Americans' favour or, or, or going against the Europeans, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but I just felt they were so, so strong. It really was a hitter's course, you know, and, and their team was just full of guys that just blasted 350, 400. And I thought the crowd of a huge part to play in the, go- the golf course. And unfortunately, I was I was proved right. But but I don't blame Harrington. I know Harrington come in for a bit of criticism. And I, I would just like, well, I'm sorry. No matter what order he played his players in or who he played, what day or dropped, whoever, it, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been the, it would have been the same... It would have been the same outcome. It might not have been 19-9, but it would still have been an American win. So you can criticise them for not playing certain players on certain days, but bottom line is the Americans were far, far too strong, um, and that was always going to be an American victory, no matter how how you look at it or however you wanted to divvy up the, the, the players and the partnerships. Well, you've just got to congratulate America for doing well and rolling 100%. 100%. And, and you know, it, it's a blip. It really is. These things all, these things go around. And, uh, you know, the Europeans have, a, have, a, have had a wonderful last 20 years or so. They've had so many fantastic victories and so many, mem- so many memorable uh, victories. And, and that will come back. You know, the Europeans' turn will come back. Um, and it will come back hopefully quite quickly. Um, so, but no, I think Harrington was, was as meticulous as we thought he would be. Um, he's he can't criticise Harrington. He's a Ryder Cup stalwart. He's an intelligent guy. The homework and the research he would have put into that over the last two or three years would have been off the charts. So, you just said there, Billy. Willie, without repeat myself, it's it's um, the Americans were just far too strong. So they can say it, and well done, America. Yep, totally. Right, Alan. We've got a young lad. A golfer, any golfer in particular, a young professional has just turned professional. What advice would you give him? Um, so probably, um, you know, health uh, very much nowadays. Um, you know, I would say I've never been, I've never personally been one um, for the gym and for diet and nutrition, but that is such a massive part of the game now where, you know, they need to absolutely look after their, themselves, their body. Um, they need to eat the right things if they can go to the gym or go out running. Um, keeping yourself fit for me is is is, is huge now because it, and the amount of travelling these players are expected to do now, mentally and physically, you have to be fit. You know, you you very rarely see a, a Craig Stadler waddling about the fairways anymore or, or somebody like that where they're pretty unfit and you know and the belly's hanging over. These guys are are proper athletes and and if you're if you're physically in good shape, you're eating the right food and everything else then mentally you'll be in good shape as well. And that'll put you in, in good stead for potentially life on tour or, or, or whatever they choose to do in their life. And, and you know, an obvious one is to, to dedicate themselves, practice hard, try and look after themselves. And, and, but mostly look after your body, look after your mind. And that's, that's really the way it is now. And again, that's where it's changed from, from when it was my time. You know, it was, you know, a lot of the guys, you would go down to a restaurant at night and they would all be sitting there, you know, Sam Torrance and the guys and Ian Woosnam, and they'd all be having a few pints and a few glasses of wine and the cigars and the cigarettes and all the rest of it. And you just don't, you just won't see that now. You just do not see it now. The, you know, the guys are a 
away at their room, they're getting room service, so they're getting eaten away, getting the right food, whatever. And it's changed days again. So so for me, physically and mentally, um, absolutely would be the first uh, first first route I'd be going down now. And as you said earlier on, try and enjoy it along the way as well. Well, if you can, you know, and if and if you are out there and you're making a lot of money and traveling the world, it's it's not it's not a bad life. Okay, so your final question, Alan, you'll be pleased to hear. What does the future hold for Alan Tate for the next two or three years? Um, so I've, I'm actually at a little bit of a crossroads just now, and I've, I've actually been thinking just recently, um, the last sort of few weeks, that I'd maybe like to try and do something else um, in the game in Scotland. Um, I'm sure I'm going to come up with another three o'clock morning, uh, three o'clock in the morning idea. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm keen to still. Um, to try and help grow the game in Scotland, to try and give our, our players as much opportunity to play. Um, so, you know, it might be another tour, it might be a, a combination of tours. I don't know yet, Willie, but there's definitely something that I'm I'm wanting to get my teeth into over the next few years and, and, and make a difference. So, and, I, and I, at the moment, I don't have that answer for you, but if we if we have me back on maybe next year, there might be uh, something that we can uh, have a talk about. Excellent. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. I could listen to you all day long, your stories. I'd like to thank you for giving up your time coming on. No problem at all, Willie. I've enjoyed it. And as I say, good luck with the, the podcast. And, and I hope you get lots of good guests on. I'm sure you will. And I hope you are successful with your uh, European, European Seniors Tour qualifying. Well, you never know. I might get back out there and see what happens. <laughs> well, if it does happen, just let me know, OK? Absolutely. Right, Alan, thank you very much. I look forward to catching up again some after dinner speaking night. No bother, Willie. Thanks for having me on. We'll get a chat and have a beer. Take care, no Alan. Bother. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Willie. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to be involved in the podcast, if you want to come on and tell your story, or you'd like to nominate anyone who you think should be on, contact me. My name is Willie McKenzie. You can contact me on 07904 756 332. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye now.